0: Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Humanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is advocate Tando Gomede, who is a commissioner for the Commission for Gender Equality, which is one of six Chapter 9 institutions that are tasked with guarding South Africa's democracy. It is a constitutionally established body tasked with advancing, promoting, and protecting gender equity in South Africa, as well as addressing gender equity across the region, the continent, and the globe. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Doctor. Um, that was a,
0: a warm introduction. Thank you, Advocate Gumede. Please, can you tell us more about the Commission for Gender Equality? Yes, um, with absolute
1: delight I can. And, you know, he's given a, a wonderful introduction to the Commission for General Equality. Indeed, uh, the Commission for General Equality, also abbreviated as the CGE, is an independent statutory body that was established with other Chapter 9 institutions under Section 181 of the Constitution of South Africa And its mandate is provided for in Section 187 of the Constitution, as well as the Commission for Gender Equality Act. Essentially, Doctor, the CGE is mandated to promote, respect for, protect, develop, and attain gender equality, as well as to make recommendations on any legislation affecting the status of women. Um, And, you know, as these various sections state, the Commission Uh, for gender equality um, must promote respect for gender equality, which includes, but is not limited to politics and the participation of women in leadership. Um, Section 187 subsection two grants the CGE, the power as regulated by national legislation necessary to perform its functions, which include the power to monitor, investigate, research, educate, lobby, advise, and report on issues concerning gender equality and uh, essentially we are geared towards supporting democracy to monitor and evaluate the implementation and compliance of domestic policy and legislative frameworks alongside the country's compliance with international uh, regulatory frameworks to promote gender equality in private and public spheres of, of society at large.
0: When you were talking about international frameworks, I know there are several international frameworks in place which are aimed at yes. promoting gender equality. So some of those include the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women and, thinking on a more local level or, or regional level, the SADC Protocol on Gender and Development. Can you tell us a little bit about how those acts influence the way we should be addressing gender and what type of learnings the general public should apply in their day-to-day work or life?
1: Okay, so let me just expand on some of those um, regional and global frameworks. So we've got the optional protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights on the Rights of Women in Africa. We've got the Solemn Declaration on Gender Equality. We've got the AU Agenda 2063. We've got the SADC Protocol on Gender Equality and Development. We've got the African Union Strategy on Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment. And as you've just mentioned, CEDAW, which is called the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Um, We've got the Beijing Platform for Action. We've got the Millennium Development Goals, which have now become the um, um, Sustainable Development Goals. And then nationally, our frameworks are the 1954 Women's Charter, South African Constitution, the Promotion of Equality and Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act, also known as PrepUDA. We've got the National Development Plan. We've got the National Framework for Women's Empowerment and Gender Equality and the National Gender Responsive Framework. I mean, these are not the only frameworks and pieces of policies that we can look to, but these are, you know, very good for setting the foundation on the work that we do. These pieces of of, um, frameworks, legislation and policy all come as a result of women and and feminists across the globe who came together to unpack the varied experiences, lived realities of um, women's disempowerment uh, across the globe. And what then came about were these various instruments which essentially aims to address the very diverse forms of gender discrimination that we experience across the globe. You know, one of the documents that I, in particular, find quite commendable is the STATIC Protocol on Gender Equality and Development. It's quite a solid document that speaks to various forms of gender discrimination within the SADIC region and how we can move towards being a, a more gender equitable society at large.
0: Thinking about the sadic, how do you feel South Africa measures up to other countries on the continent with respect to gender equality?
1: Look, I'm going to say something that probably everyone knows I'm going to say, which is that South Africa is doing quite a good job in terms of what it writes down on paper. But the practical realization of that isn't particularly good. In fact, a couple of years ago, I hosted, I co-hosted a TV show called "It's a Feminist Thing," and I said something that was very controversial on the show, which was that, you know, South Africa's constitution is, to a large extent, or at least has got the foundations and the making of an equity-driven and you know, feminist document. And I said a lot of people didn't understand the context in which I said this because people just take snippets of things. And then they blow it out of proportion without looking at the context and the spirit in which that was actually being said. We have got section nine of our constitution, the equality clause. Under this section, South Africa protects the rights of the LGBTQIA plus persons, mm-hmm. protects the rights of pregnant women, protects the rights of every single identity that you could possibly imagine. But more specifically for the work of the commission, it protects the rights of people of of all different sexes, of all different genders, and all different sexual orientations. And so for me, being someone who works in in the gender space, being someone who is an intersectional feminist, for me, that is the making of something that is an equity-driven document and therefore a feminist-driven document.
0: You've raised a really important point because it's not only Mm. thinking about legislation relating to gender and lack of implementation. We have got fantastic policies. Sometimes I wonder if it may be one of the reasons that things don't get implemented is short-term thinking, that people are in a position for a shorter term than they should be. And when the Mm. next committee comes into place, the wheel starts again it doesn't it doesn't continue but given your experiences as a lived reality how can we move from policy paper to practicality
1: well that's a very good question and you're asking that question at the right time we have the the 2024 elections that are coming up now I want to expand on what i just said now in my in my previous res- response yes. which is that we have the makings of a document that can make a formidable impact in our society. The foundation is there. If we take out the obsession with different tags, labels, terminology, whether or not one wants to believe that it's an anti-racist document, whether one wants to believe whether it is um, potentially an intersectional feminist document, let's leave all of those labels and those tags behind. No matter how you look at, at it, our constitution has got the makings of a document that has an, an equity-driven foundation. Now, the question is, how do we bring that to life? I would like to think that when we look at our universe of policies, legislation, regulation, we're not doing too bad at all. You know, there, I, I do have some critiques, but those are personal critiques about, for instance, the fact that our triple PE isn't mandatory. People can, you know, pick and choose whether they want to do it or not. and. As um, history has shown us, if people who have been trained to be discriminatory have to choose between continuing the discriminatory practices and transforming, they're going to go with what they know best, which is to discriminate. And um, it's most unfortunate that, you know, triple PE, whether it's the actual piece of legislation or policy documents, or whether we look at um, triple PE from a, from a higher level concept, It just isn't something that is being meaningfully and as a matter of mandatory compliance implemented in our society. But what I want to really expand on is the fact that the reason why our constitutional democracy is not a lived experience beyond the paper is because of poor public participation, amongst other things. um, But I want to, I want to, using public participation as a frame of reference, particularly because (laughs) we have the elections coming up. And because of some of the common dialogue that I've heard, you know, I actually was in the car yesterday listening to one of the radio stations. The common sentiments from audiences, and it's not the first time that this has happened, in my engagement with people on the ground, in other spaces and engagements, people have grown apathetic. People don't want to participate in election processes. They don't want to participate in the establishment of leadership of of government, be it in the political or apolitical space. And I get it. I mean, I think people have been let down for quite some time, but if people don't participate um, in leadership, government and the the distribution of resources, Then the thing that we have on paper, the very thing that people have relied on for all of these years, becomes null and void. I do have a thought about why people don't participate beyond just um, the built up apathy from disappointments, but I'll save that thought for later for now. Participation is
0: crucial because that's where we we get our power from. And if we are not putting a hand up, if we are not saying yes or not saying no, it just continues having this apathetic trend um, you were talking about transitioning and this ideal of when a, an establishment is in place and they kind of go with the de facto view, whether it's a, a discriminatory practice or not, that that's how things have always been done. And no one particularly likes to change. When we were chatting offline, one of the aspects of our conversation was about patriarchy. And how you, for instance, in your uh, current experiences, which I'd like you to share some of your um site trips that you've undertaken recently, have witnessed a change in terms of non-acceptance of patriarchy by millennial generations and uh, and Gen Zs. please can you tell us about that? Yeah, you
1: know i've just following from you know what I'd spoken about before, what I'm starting to see unfolding is people are now beginning to redefine their value. And now the discussion about value doesn't start now. The discussion around value is almost as old as time, but I want to bring it to to the 1600s here in South Africa in particular, which is that from the time... South Africa experienced its first iterations of colonization what things like colonization and apartheid did and remember colonization and apartheid were not just about race they were very much about gender as well it was really about um race and gender so just to put it out there so that people don't get confused about why i'm speaking about this but when people came here they brought about with them a system that valued people based on superficial difference. And apartheid really perfected that system. And so for the longest time, um, people of color as well as women have had to stretch their arms out and cup their hands in the shape of a bowl so they can get their apportionment so they can get what the governing system at the time perceived to be their value. We've been participating in that for the longest of time. And I think even post our democracy, for the most part of our democracy, we waited to be given the apportionment of what the governing system believed to be our value. And we didn't believe that we had the power to redefine what our value is. We didn't believe that we had the power to disrupt the system that was created um, during the colonial and advanced colonial eras. Until very recently where people have actually decided that they don't want to participate in it anymore. People are, are reconfiguring value in the labor market. People are reconfiguring value in terms of political participation. People are reconfiguring social and societal value. And that's why so many people are, you know, for instance, just not participating in patriarchy because women and girls and hey, even men and boys, just by the way, because patriarchy is a a system that... um, It has negative impacts on everyone in society because we're all gendered beings. But um, what's happening now is that young women and girls are saying, We don't want to be picked. We'll pick you. For the longest time, um, you know, as I was mentioning, that our mothers participated in propping themselves up picked by very specific types of male figures and now we have gotten to a point where women and girls are just refusing to participate in that because they see themselves as being far more valuable than than that far more valuable than being someone's girlfriend fiance wife um mother um People are realizing that there's so much value in being an authentic human being with individual characteristics, characteristics that have the capacity to contribute to society as a whole and not just be someone's um, mother or to be someone's wife. And the same goes with men as well. Men are realizing that, hey, my value in society is not just to, to be a moneymaker. There's more to me and men are saying that I've got feelings and I've got feelings about who it is that I am in this community, who am I in society? How do I demonstrate and express my authentic self in society and the community at large? And I think there is some friction, I have to be honest, but the friction is happening as a result of people trying to find each other in this larger conversation, in this larger universe of existence, we're trying to reconfigure the things that have uh, been entrenched in our mind for almost as long as um, you know humanity has been around. And so it's, it's very interesting to see it. But the re-evaluation of self, all human beings, is unfolding in front of us.
0: You're so right. And I see this as a, a positive transition, breaking down these yes. traditional gender stereotypes that have been so pervasive and haven't served everybody's purpose, whether that is a man, whether mm. that is a woman. It really is mm. now about embracing your holistic being and living to your authentic self. Mm. Mm. You're listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity, and today we're talking to Advocate Tando Gomede, who is a commissioner for the Commission for Gender Equality. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Advocate Gameda, one thing that I wanted to ask you before we move away slightly from your day-to-day workings is that you were appointed by the President of the Republic of South Africa to become a commissioner for the Commission of Gender Equality in South Africa. How did it make you feel to be selected for this role?
1: (laughs) Oh, that question, Um, gosh. When the entire thing unfolded, it actually made me think of Oprah Winfrey, if I'm being honest. Oprah Winfrey, a couple of um, years ago, uh, she had a show where she spoke about 10,000 hours. And I remember when I was nominated last year and I went through the entire process. I mean, it was a nine-month process. Last year is the year that I actually got um, nominated and then went to go and interview, etc. And it was 10 years to the day that I first be- began work as a gender officer at the University of Witwatersrand. I was um, one of the branch executive committee members for the South African Student Congress. And when I map out my journey to being this very young person trying to find, you know, different ways and spaces to express my authentic self to live out my divine purpose, and then I realized that you know, 10,000 hours is 10 years. So for me, I think it was, um, I felt very reflective and I felt. Kind of a, I think I had a big sigh, because I thought, wow, um, I finally got here. I never expected to get to this point. Ten years ago, I didn't say, you know, this is. I want to become a commissioner at the Commission for Gender Equality. That's not what I thought. I just knew that my purpose was to serve people in this way. It was to serve humanity in this way. And there were so many times, doctor, I've been not very financially viable, um, struggling with so many aspects of life, but knowing for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is how i meant to serve humanity. And um, being resilient through critiques, criticisms, People not wanting me to outwardly say that I'm for um women's empowerment, people source people to me saying, don't tell people that you're a feminist, you won't get a job. And it's true, I lost out on many opportunities because I said I was a feminist, because I said I was anti-racist, because I said that I was pro equity, you know, pro everything that actually makes, you know, the world a better place. And I'm so glad that I stuck by my guns. I'm so glad that I remain to be a divine purpose. That's that's really all I can say. It's kind of, I think when it happened, um, it was a very surreal moment. But I think I was very thankful to the universe, very thankful to God for the fact that I had remained steadfast for 10 years, remained steadfast to what I believed to be. God ordained half and destiny.
0: That's a wonderful story. And one of the aspects that I really take out of what you've said during the conversation today, but also in, in that answer, is that you are you know yourself, you are yes. really defined about your value set, what your beliefs yes. are. And to mm. be honest, it's quite rare some people will sit on on the fence and in that middle ground neither yeah. going left nor right but you are very definitive of which values you support and what you don't support.
1: Yes but but you know I also like I don't ever want to make people feel bad for sitting on the fence because I get it. You know um I was actually having a conversation with a very close friend of mine who's also kind of in the human rights space she's an activist she's a model and we're just having this conversation about survival. Survival makes people do things that they don't want to do. I think it's just that maybe some people have more resilience, either as a matter of personality, or they have more resilience because they have the economic resources to buffer. So there are certain people who maybe they might not be wealthy, but they have enough support around them that allows them to be not too fearful of the survival aspect, mm. but I, you know, the because our society is so exploitative, it also instills so much fear. So we are always kind of um, searching for these tangible objects that fulfill our needs for survival, and we are always being threatened with the fear of losing these tangible things. And so you better fall in line. You better fall in line or else all of these tangible things that you've worked for, you're going to lose them. And so I think for me, because I had experiences of loss um, and threats of loss very early on in my life and seeing the people around me me being incredibly resilient in the face of the, the threat of loss or loss, it builds inside of me um an internal resistance when faced with threats of loss or when faced with loss with, with mm-hmm. loss, especially insofar as um tangible, superficial, worldly things are concerned.
0: Resilience is such an admirable trait, and you're right, life is complicated and
1: mm-hmm. many of us it have really to
0: conform is. at least one point yeah. in time or, or another. Yes, yes. So 10 years in the making to get to this position. Please reflect on some of your journey for us. It's quite a long journey.
1: I always, you know, I know that I'm young, but I always tell people that I've been doing this for so long. So my journey began, I think now I'm 30 um, and so and my journey probably began about 15 years ago. My my journey to how I serve humanity didn't start after I got my degree, and people shouldn't wait to get a degree or a qualification to affirm them to go after their destiny. I started as an amateur, wannabe scientist, innovator. In high school, I did the ESCOM Expo for Young Scientists since I was in grade eight. And I always tell people that, you know, the first year that I went to that competition, I didn't do particularly well. (laughs) I loved how my poster looked, (laughs) but I didn't win any award. (laughs) Um, But I was awestruck. I mean, I was completely dumbfounded. Because I saw other young amateur innovators and scientists who created things from scratch, and I immediately fell in love. I also just had um, I was very drawn to understanding like human nature, how people behave, how people think, and the injustices of um, humanity so. Reading books like Animal Farm, reading books like Lord of the Flies at school, along with being exposed to an environment of innovation and problem solving. That's really what sparked the journey. So I actually never wanted to be a lawyer. I'm a lawyer by um, qualification. I wanted to be an engineer. I knew I wanted to be some kind of a biomedical engineer or do something with biology, but also with with an element of engineering and building. I knew I wanted to be a creator or a builder, an innovator an inventor. That's what I wanted to be. I looked up to Albert Einstein, I loved Albert Einstein and and the other greats like Niels Bohr. And I did exceptionally well in the expo competitions after my failure of grade eight, because that's when I started winning at national competitions, getting awards, by the time I was in metric, I had won the Denel Aviation Prize where I made like a, a hard soap for women that would be safe for the virgin ecology. I also came up with an idea on how to reduce energy consumption in South Africa. And um, my team and I came second place in the province. So I'd won a number of awards. Um, and when I was in metric, Everything that I'd worked for collapsed, everything that I worked for. And I obviously, they couldn't qualify to go and do the engineering degree that I wanted to do. So I ended up having to go to law school. A lot of people would say that that's nice life problems, but I didn't want to go to law school. I didn't want to go to bed, but that's where I had to go. <laughs> so I was very fortunate in my first year because... I encountered something called the Alan Gray Obis Foundation Scholarship. And the Alan Gray Obis Foundation Scholarship actually takes young people who are thought leaders, young people who are entrepreneurs, young people who are destructive, young people who are change makers and leaders, and gives them the academic resources and other resources to allow them to finish with school and to allow them to pursue their entrepreneurial pursuits whether it's in academia, whether it's in business, in any space, really. But you just have to have the entrepreneurial mindset. You have to be a disruptive thinker. You have to be someone who's a transformation and development agent. That's basically the requirements. Very difficult um, uh, application process, but it was the only scholarship I applied for because I knew that this was for me. I knew that there was absolutely nothing no other scholarship out there that would speak to my various textures and layers other than this. And I actually got the scholarship. And so now I'm at university, I'm studying law and I have this wonderful scholarship. And so I had this um, duality of having the law school environment and the university environment teach me about or skill me in law Teach me in social justice, kill me in things like human rights and how to be responsive to social issues. So studying law specifically at Bits University did that for me. And then I also then had the cultivation of the Ellen Obis Foundation Scholarship and Fellowship that allowed me to understand problems and how to solve those problems and enabled me to think on a scale that wasn't localized anymore but was global. So I could see myself as being something beyond the boundaries of the country. And so when you take those two things together, um, you have the type of journey that I've had for the for the past 10 years, which is me getting into student politics at university, me beginning to explore different sports, leaderships and philosophies around race and around gender, me then having the courage to become the the, the president of the newly established ISEC Student Society at Wits a couple of years later, graduated from my degree, um, did a whole bunch of things at WITS University that hadn't been done before, had the courage and the audacity to do that, went on to, to um, work at Lewis for Human Rights at the Statelessness Department, helping people who were in need. Then I went to go work as a judge's research clerk at the Supreme Court of Appeal, went to go live in Cape Town, went to go live in the Free State Province, and then began my journey as an advocate, pupil advocate. I was selected amongst almost 200 um, highly skilled practitioners across the country to be trained to become an advocate at South Africa's first Pan-African Bar Association called Pabasa. And um, then started my own consultancy and then really began to work tremendously hard in not only South Africa's national gender machinery, but international gender machinery as well. Um, And fast forward, then I got to become um, a commissioner at the Commission for Gender Equality. I mean, I'm saying it so simply, but it's been far more complicated than that. But it's been an incredible journey that is not out of my own making, but having the fortune of having incredible positive affirmation and support from people around you. As I mentioned earlier, I have known nothing but um, female leadership, you know, outside of the home that is. I've only seen women who had the audacity to be heads of departments, who had the audacity to become principals of school, who had the... to become deans of um, universities, and these were the environments that I was groomed in. And so the natural product of that is what what I've now become.
0: Thanks for sharing your journey. It was really inspiring listening to you, how you have brought every dynamic of yourself to the fore from entrepreneurship, from courage, from resilience, from adapting to change and embracing. No, that's true.
1: And, you know, I'm definitely an entrepreneur through and through, still an entrepreneur now. And I, I wish the world could know about the entrepreneurial mindset. I think, the vision of um ellen gray who now uh, who left us in 2019 the vision of ellen gray was that look we could still have a society where you know human beings um you know reach their fullest potential but we could do it in a way where we respect one another and we dignify um one another we could still have this this place of of competition but doing it in such a way where we are responsive to the social, economic, and political issues of our time. And also, I think, elevating different types of characteristics. We've we've elevated characteristics like being exploitative, being patriarchal and misogynistic, and to elevate um, people who wanted to bring about a society that is human-centric, that is centered on solving problems, that is centered on understanding the human condition and being responsive to it in the most holistic way possible, mm-hmm. and 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 that is that is a way of thinking that I that I wish um, can be promulgated beyond um, South Africa and the different territories that Ellen Gray Over's Foundation has has made itself um, visible in.
0: I think that's a, a great statement and a fantastic sentiment that Alan Gray espoused. As we close out our conversation, please share a few words of motivation, inspiration for girls and women who are listening to us on the continent.
1: Mm. Wow. Okay, so for anyone who is who has listened, I would say... One of the biggest qualities that could make a difference in your life over the next 12 months, let's say, is the quality of courage. Um, I don't think that I am the most intelligent person on the planet, I'm certainly not the wealthiest person on the planet, but I think the difference between myself and my peers is courage. And I wish that a lot of women and girls out there would exercise the courage. Exercise the courage to go for your dreams. Exercise the courage to speak up when you see something wrong, whether it's being done to you or being done to someone else. Courage is is an easy word to say, but it's a difficult thing to perform because courage and the exercise of it does not come without some kind of consequence and repercussion but always remember that you are not here for a worldly, fleshly, or for lack of a better word, a humanly pursuit. We are all here to execute a divine purpose that is beyond ourselves. And so when you exercise your courage and while you deal with the ramifications whatever they might be, Remember that you have a divine and formidable force that is behind you. And that alone should be able to calm your fears. I do also want to say that courage is not about fearlessness. There's no such a thing as being fearless. Take it out of your head. There's no such a thing. Almost every single decision that I have (laughs) made has had um, doubts and fears but your responsibility is to overcome those adverse feelings so that you can experience your divine purpose that's all i have to say
0: thank you for that wonderful message and i think it is it, it's a small word but it is a hard thing to do but so so it worth it be courageous yes. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to advocate Tando Gomede, a commissioner for the Commission for Gender Equality.